second wave of quarantined evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Well, I hope that if you're a regular listener, you enjoyed the respite from COVID-19 last week because unfortunately, it is trying to sneak back into our lives. A rise has been found in the Omicron subvariant known as BA.2, aka Stealth Omicron. Now, it earned that moniker because researchers worried it might be more hard to detect than the original Omicron variant. Another strain, BA.1, was actually easier to detect due to a deletion in the gene that codes for the spike protein. Because it was missing a target, PCR tests would display a specific error message, S-gene target failure. So that made it much easier to find. PCR tests still identified it properly as SARS-CoV-2, but with that specific error, obviously, it was able to they were able to really quickly label it. BA2, however, does not have the deletion and so did not kick up a specific sign that it was a unique sublineage. In order to differentiate it, researchers need to do a complete genomic sequencing, which is a lot lot more uh, painstaking and uh, harder to do than a simple PCR test. But now these sublineages are taking over, so it should actually be easier to identify now because it's in a lot more people and the original uh, strain, BA1, is actually being uh, pushed back. And so for this, it turns out that it was first detected in January at relatively low levels, but the subvariant has been spreading since then. Between January 30th and February 5th, cases from the National Genomic Surveillance System accounted for just 1%. By the end of February, the percentage had risen to 7%, and in the first week of March, it was estimated to be almost 14%, according to the CDC. Now, between the 6th and 12th of March, BA2 has risen to 23% of the new cases, with BA1, the original Omicron strain, making up 10.8% and another subvariant, BA1.1, making up the other 66.1%. Now, BA1.1 is very similar to the original variant but does feature a substitution in the spike protein gene. Interestingly, in many other countries, such as India, Denmark, the Philippines, and South Africa, BA2 has become the dominant strain. And this may yet become the reality in the U.S., but whether it will cause a new wave is yet to be determined. And so BA2 does seem to be more easily spread 
than the already highly contagious BA1 contagious uh, variant. Previous infections with BA1 seem to offer a high level of protection, at least in the short term, to reinfection with BA2. Um, but of course, we don't have a lot of data yet because it's very early in the emergence of this variant. So while it may be offering protection now, we don't know how long that will continue for. And vaccines, especially with the added booster, also seem to allow for several similar levels of protection from both variants. Though, as we know, all Omicron variants can lead to a breakthrough infection. Reports note that nearly 40% of wastewater monitoring sites have detected rises in SARS-CoV-2 virus. Tracking the virus in wastewater is one of the first lines of defense, as the virus sheds from waste before it is detectable by other means. So, again, there is no guarantee that this variant will or will not cause a surge. We just don't know. But it is definitely overtaking other um, strains pretty quickly. And so we know that while millions of U.S. citizens did contract Omicron uh, during the first wave, many more did not. And again, there is no good data yet on how long that observed immunity will last, especially with the wave of relaxed COVID-19 precautions. It could be a wave waiting to happen. But for now, again, it seems to be spreading here more slowly than it is in other countries. Debbie Dowell, chief medical officer for the CDC's COVID-19 response, stated in a briefing on March 12th, The speculation I've seen is that it may extend the curve going down, case rates for Omicron, but it is unlikely to cause another surge that we saw initially with Omicron. So, yeah. Um, right now, there isn't a ton of reason to be alarmed. It seems to just be slowly becoming a more uh, dominant strain, but it doesn't seem to be kicking off a wave of really intense new cases. But that's here in the U.S. The uh, World Health Organization announced recently that weekly cases for Omicron, um, sorry, for COVID, were up 8% for the week ending on March 13th. And the variant is growing in the Western Pacific, Europe, and African regions. These increases are occurring despite reductions in testing in some countries, which means the cases we are seeing are just the tip of the iceberg, Director General of the WHO, Dr. Tedros Adham, Adhan, had, I'm sorry, I feel bad, um, but I'm continually terrible at names. Dr. Tedros said, <laughs> um, and so that was in a press briefing last Wednesday. And again, this is coming right as many countries are also relaxing their restrictions as well as scaling back testing. And, you know, 
this almost feels to me a little bit like stopping taking your antibiotics because you feel better. And we all know how well that works out. Um, (laughs) The only reason we're probably not all panicked about antibiotic resistance right now is because we're too busy being panicked about Omicron uh, and COVID-19, especially. Uh, Because if we weren't, we would probably be focused a lot more on antibiotic resistance, which continues to uh, tick up. And we continue to hear about potential breakthroughs, but nothing that's really come through at this point that is actually a uh, momentary cure for that problem. Because, of course, the bacteria are in the long run, always going to win for some amount of time. They're always going to be able to develop something that will get around our medicines. I don't think that we will ever have a period where we are free of bacterial infections, but we certainly can mitigate them better than we are able to right now. At least I hope so, because that is, again, another huge, huge public health crisis uh, that is kind of silently in the background at the moment while we are dealing with COVID. And so, yeah, as with antibiotic resistance, if you start to scale back measures for COVID when it is not yet done, I do worry that this may lead to a rather shocking increase in cases, and especially it could turn out that a new variant arises that is something other than Omicron and its sub uh, and its subvariants, and it could actually be something that bypasses vaccines and the immunity that people have built up from other strains. So I really do think that uh, victory is not yet in sight. Uh, And again, I, for one, will continue to wear a mask when I go out among other people. And that is something that I definitely do plan to keep doing and have done this whole time. So um, I'm, again, I keep saying I am more precautious than Uh, the general public, because I really do not want to get COVID. I've worked very hard to avoid getting COVID, and I'm not going to relax my vigilance at the last moment and get it at the tail end. Um, I'm going to continue to try and be as safe as I possibly can. And of course, one of the other things that is going on is that the White House is asking Congress for more funding as the money's already set aside for COVID-19 testing and treatment in the U.S. will be running out in June. And so if we end up needing a fourth dose, if we end up having a new surge, uh, that money is going to run out very quickly. With reduced capability to perform adequate surveillance, the country will be prone to be to being blindsided by future variants, the White House said in a summary of the consequences of the funding shortage. Uh, And so, yeah, they're looking for, I forget exactly how much more, but it's a couple more billion dollars 
uh, to continue the fight, which is good. I'm glad that they're still paying attention and that they are uh, recognizing that they do still need more money. And, um, you know, I did mention the fourth dose. I am currently agnostic on the fourth dose. There is some reason to believe that continuing to try and protect people from getting the virus at all is not as effective as trying to get new people who have not been vaccinated at all vaccines. And unfortunately, this isn't an either or sometimes that we can control. Um, a lot of times Western countries just get to pick and choose what they want to do. Uh, and so I feel like at this point, because everything still suggests that with the two shots and the booster, that your likelihood of being hospitalized or dying from Omicron or any of the other strains of COVID-19 that are still circulating, um, there really aren't that many at this point, frankly. It's mostly Omicron, at least in uh, the United States and um, much of the other parts of the world that are tracking the variants at this point. Um, but I think that the, that fact means that a fourth dose probably isn't necessary. Um, it will probably make people feel better in the sense that they'll feel more protected. But again, I feel like those doses could be going to people. There are still millions and millions and millions of people who haven't even had the chance to get a single dose. And so, yeah. And I think that that is something that is important. And I think that we do have to just keep remembering that we are not out of the woods yet, that we are still very much in a period where there is the ability to have new surges, to have new variants emerge. And so we really need to stay vigilant. Okay. That is all the COVID-19 for tonight. I figured I would just talk about it a little bit because there is this emerging uh, fact of the new strain, but I also didn't want to dwell too long on it. Um, but don't worry, there's some more gloom and doom down the road, uh, but also some fun stuff and uh, some interesting things to bring us back up. So let's let's do something that is happy. Let's talk about the fact that NASA has continued to refine the alignment of the mirrors of the new space telescope, and everything seems to be going really well. Um, it just seems to be being hit out of the park. And that is very exciting. So far, we're finding that the performance is as good or better than our most optimistic projections, said Lee Feinberg, the Webb Optical Telescope Element Manager. And so what were once several individual pictures of the target star have been resolved into a single focused shot that also brings into focus a variety of galaxies in the background. 
The rough alignment was completed in February, but fine-tuning was needed to make sure that every mirror was receiving the amount the same amount of light and thus creating a single mirror. The final alignments moved the mirrors at the nano at the nanometer scale, but everything seems to have been successful. We have now achieved what's called the diffraction limited alignment of the telescope. Marshall Perrin, the Webb Optical Telescope, I'm sorry, Webb um, Optical Telescope Element Manager, said, apparently they are both element managers. Interesting. Threw me off for a second. I hadn't reread that um, factoid. The images are focused together as finely as the laws of physics allow. This is as sharp an image as you can get from a telescope this large. So that's very exciting. Sometimes space is really hard, and we know that. Um, We've had terrible tragedies with space flight, and we've had, you know, really promising satellites that have malfunctioned at the last minute and just ended up as duds. We've had... Uh, the mole, uh, the InSight lander's mole that just failed to be able to break through the surface. These are all things that happen, uh, but sometimes you get lucky and all of your painstaking work doesn't get blown up or fail for some unforeseen reason. And the telescope seems to have hit this out of the park. At no point in that process did we have any technical issues with the telescope. The biggest is just how closely it matched the models and predictions from the ground. Perrin said, honestly, the team was giddy at the time looking at this data. And so the aligned, this aligns the mirror with the telescope's primary instrument, the near-infrared camera, provided by the University of Arizona. But there are three other instruments that will also need to be tweaked to achieve the correct alignment. These are the near-infrared spectrograph provided by the European Space Agency with components from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, the mid-infrared instrument, a collaboration between the European Consortium with ESA and with NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and the Fine Guidance Center sensor or near-infrared imager and slitless spectrograph, which is provided by the Canadian Space Agency. And so once everything is aligned, the science can begin. Now, there will definitely be some pictures that are chosen to be aesthetic representations of what the telescope can do, so have no fear. We will get some pretty Hubble-style pictures from the Webb telescope, Um, but there is already a year's worth of real science that has been planned out, and of course, we hope that there will be many, many more years of science that we will be able to use this telescope for. And one of the really cool things about it is that it is Really, even though it's the um, NASA's, uh, you know, triumph, ultimately, there's a lot of international partnerships that go on with this. And it's really great to see what a collaboration this incredible space telescope represents. 
And of course, it is once again a huge win for NASA and government funded space exploration. Yes, I am very much emphasizing the word government funded. Um, regular listeners know my thoughts on uh, privatizing space uh, flight and space exploration. Uh, I am very much against it, um, especially given the people who are being charged with it and their dubious uh, roles in actually being able to have innovation that isn't exploitative. Um, but all in all, it's kind of a symbol of the best that we can achieve when we're not doing things like fighting useless wars that kill min millions of innocent people or spending all of our time trying to accumulate wealth above all. <sighs> so speaking of the futility of war and how it impacts scientific co collaboration, the ESA has actually announced that they have suspended the joint mission with Russia for the ExoMars rover. And so the ExoMars rover was supposed to uh, be deployed later this year. It would have um, several components, including the rover itself, which was named after Rosalind Franklin. Uh, and I hope I don't have to tell you who that was because she was amazing and absolutely deserves all of the hyping that she has gotten in the past few decades after having been really, uh, having had people really try and write her out of history. And so ESA stated that they could no longer carry out ongoing cooperation with Roscosmos on the ExoMars rover with a launch in 2022. Now, Roscosmos had developed the surface platform and contributed components to the rover, as well as planning to supply the proton rocket that would have launched the payload toward the Red Planet. As an intergovernmental organization mandated to develop and implement space programs in full respect with European values, we deeply deplore the humanitarian the human casualties, and tragic consequences of the aggression towards Ukraine, the ESA said in a statement. While recognizing the impact on scientific exploration of space, ESA is fully aligned with the sanctions imposed on Russia by its member states. And so basically the new plan is to try to either enlist the help of NASA, which actually was an early potential partner in the venture before they actually went and created their own uh, Mars rover um, Perseverance, or to find a way to use European resources and industry to finish the mission. What we really need to do is look into these options, ESA Director General Yosef Ashbacher told Space News. The option in terms of Europe alone or Europe with other partners. Now, the rover is meant to join the search for signs of ancient life on the planet. And according to the ESA, the rover is equipped with six wheels, which can actually rotate independently. 
a drill that should be able to reach six and a half feet below the surface, and the ability to collect samples and analyze them with an onboard laboratory. Now, of course, the reason that everybody keeps wanting to drill into the soil of Mars is because with the extremely weak atmosphere and without a strong magnetic field, basically the surface of Mars is constantly being bombarded by the solar wind, and that's not really conducive for uh, the possibility of life. But if you dig down underneath, then there is the possibility of finding things that have been shielded from that initial bombardment on the surface. The other problem, of course, with this is that it could mean a two-year delay in the project as the window for launching crafts to Mars is only available bi-annually. So basically, because of the differences in our orbits, the Earth and Mars are only well-aligned every two years. Um, and of course, you want to only send out a craft when the two planets are aligned because you want to use the least possible amount of fuel you can because, as we know, fuel is extremely expensive um, as a part of a space um, mission. And so you want to be making sure that you really are doing it at the exact right time. And so, unfortunately, Roscosmos has in recent years come under this way of the Russian government, and the chief, Dmitry Rogozin, has been known for some time to be rather openly hostile to the United States, at least, if not also to the European Union. And so the conflict in Ukraine, in Ukraine has served to cut what were already seemingly frayed lines of cooperation. Now, it's always a difficult thing to deal with when there is conflict, especially in a country as large and diverse as Russia. Intellectuals are often the best allies for suing for peace when their country is involved in conflicts, but they can also be victims of policies that are meant to punish the state, but end up punishing individuals who would otherwise be allies. For instance, the CERN Council met early in the month and voted to suspend Russia's observer status at the Large Hadron Collider and to not begin any new collaborations with Russian institutions. They did not vote to sever ties completely, allowing current collaborations to run their course. Ukraine has been an associate member state of CERN since 2016. The resolution emphasized that CERN will promote initiatives to support Ukrainian collaborators and Ukrainian scientific activity in the field of high-energy physics. Russia has had observer status at CERN for many years, as does the United States. This means that the country has contributed significantly to the CERN infrastructure, but is not a voting member of the Council. An open letter from Russian scientists involved at CERN stated, we would like to express our sorrow and regret about what happens in Ukraine. We stand against the military action initiated in Ukraine by the authorities of the Russian Federation. We stand strongly for resolving the conflict through diplomacy and negotiations as the only appropriate way. 
And so I don't think there's any reason to doubt that expression of uh, sorrow. It's a real moral dilemma as to whether or not scientific research bodies should cut ties with scientists and intellectuals in aggressor states. I definitely don't have an answer, but it's something I think that people should carefully consider to avoid turning allies into enemies. So, yeah. Okay, weren't we supposed to be trying to uh, bring up happier things? Uh, This was definitely another nadir, and I uh, apologize for that. Um, But after we take a break and do some show promos and PSAs, We are going to lighten it up again, and we're going to talk about a really cool uh, machine learning uh, slash AI tool, Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the difference between those two concepts as well um, by the end of the show. All right, so please do stay tuned uh, and listen to these commercial, the commercial break, um, well, not commercials. We do not have commercials. We are, again, um, a fully volunteer uh, nonprofit radio station. But anyways, uh, please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap, During the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have 
our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to be moving on to a really awesome story about something that is truly a place where uh, machines and men can come together and do something very cool. And so this is about how Machine learning is helping archaeologists solve mysteries from ancient Greek texts. Now, um, I did mention the sort of AI machine learning distinction. Uh, In articles about this, they do tend to use AI, but I am going to stick to using machine learning. Um, There is a philosophical difference there that I think is important. Uh, So please forgive me. And like I said, uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit more at the end of the show. Um, But I did want to talk about this and something else before that. Okay, so this machine learning program is helping archaeologists solve the mysteries of ancient Greek texts. So Google DeepMind has teamed up with classical scholars to develop a new machine learning tool that uses deep neural networks to help decipher damaged inscriptions from ancient Greece by suggesting possible solutions for missing fragments. The tool is called Ithaca and is the newest generation, the first of which was a program called Pythia. Not only can the program help decipher the inscriptions, It can also identify within a small uh, window when and where an inscription was created. Ithaca has already been used to resolve an ongoing debate concerning the correct dating of a group of ancient Athenian decrees. And what's cool is you can actually access a free version of the software and the code is open source, which is always great. Um, All code should be open source. Um, but that's a <laughs> that's an anarchist uh, talking point for another day. Um, and so, as you've probably seen in museums, many ancient sources, regardless of their medium, are fragmentary and often have portions that are illegible. It's also hard to date and locate texts that have been moved and which can't spare samples for destructive dating techniques. Generally, trying to cipher out what is meant by such texts is left to highly skilled epigraphists. Um, I always thought it was epigraphers, but um, anyways, epigraphists or epigraphers, um, either one, I guess. 
But researchers realized that this kind of word probability would be an ideal use of machine learning. And so that original program, Pythia, is named after the high priestess and oracle of Delphi, who was said to deliver pronouncements from Apollo. It was developed by deep mind researchers Yanis Assail, Thea Summershield, and Jonathan Prague, who can collaborated with researchers at the University of Oxford. Their initial step involved converting the Packard Humanities Institute database, which is the largest digital collection of ancient Greek inscriptions, into machine-accessible text called PHI-ML. This meant converting around 35,000 inscriptions and more than 3 million words from the 7th century BCE to the 5th century CE. They then trained Pythia with both words and individual Greek characters in order to allow it to begin to predict missing letters in inscriptions. Pythia was designed using pattern recognition capabilities found in deep neural networks. Pythia would look at incomplete inscriptions and suggest as many as 20 different solutions for the missing letters, with each ranked by a confidence interval. Historians then tasked with, were then tasked with deciphering which texts were the most likely fit. The team pitted Pythia against Oxford graduate students in epigraphy. After completing 2,949 inscription solutions, Pythia came back with a 30.1% error rate, while the grad students had a 57.3% error rate. Pythia was, of course, also much faster. It deciphered 50 texts in just a few seconds compared to two hours for the students. And so Ithaca is the next generation tool building on Pythia's success and adds those features of being able to predict the geographic distribution and timeline of inscriptions. The probability distribution over all possible geographic predictions is helpfully visualized on a map. To shed light on possible underlying geographical connections across the ancient world, the team wrote in a blog post. The date distribution is predicted along a timeline between 800 BCE and 800 CE. They found that Ithaca alone had a 62% accuracy rate for inscriptions, but when adding a human historian, the rate was bumped up to 72%. The program's accuracy for geographic locations was 71%, and it was able to date inscriptions to within 30 years. As for that date controversy... Again, historians had suggested that a set of Athenian degrees had to be dated no later than 446 BCE. They based this assumption on a particular form of a letter, the Attic three-bar sigma, which was supposed to have fallen out of favor with Athenian bureaucrats by 446 BCE when it was supplanted by the Ionic four-bar sigma. However, This common knowledge has been challenged in recent years, with some scholars suggesting that the Attic three-bar sigma was used for documents far past this cutoff. For instance, 
Several decrees dated by this method seem to conflict with the historical accounts of Thucydides. Researchers then began to find evidence of the letter form being used long after 446 BCE. The historians reasoned that based on other clues, the decrees should be dated to around 420 BCE. When they were given to Ithaca, Ithaca predicted a date of 421 BCE for the texts, backing up the newer hypothesis. Although it might seem like a small difference, this date shift has significant implications for our understanding of the political history of classical Athens, Summershield said in a statement. The next steps for the team are to develop versions of Ithaca that can work with other languages, including Akkadian, Demotic, Hebrew, and Mayan. This paper represents a very important development in the collaborative use of AI to enhance the restoration, dating, and attribution of inscriptions written in Greek from the ancient world over a period of several centuries, said Alison Cooley, president of the International Digital Epigraphy Association at the University of Warwick in England, who is not affiliated with the project. The innovative design of Ithaca promises to transform the potential contribution of inscribed evidence to our understanding of key moments in world history. And so... Uh, another scholar who was also not affiliated the, with the project was pretty much ecstatic at the idea of, for instance, having Ithaca start looking at uh, the huge amount of ancient papyri that we have. And so, yeah, this could be a real game changer for classical uh, studies and for studies of other ancient uh, writing systems such as the Maya and so, yeah, it is pretty darn exciting. Um, I know it sounds a little dry, but it's actually really, really cool. Okay, so one more thing uh, to talk about that is random. Uh, so if you're a regular listener, you probably know that I enjoy, well, let's be Let's let's be uh, frank about it. I enjoy hurting myself intellectually uh, by watching videos about subjects like the flat Earth and ancient aliens and young Earth creationism. Um, and there, I specifically mean young Earth creationism, where it says that the world was created six thousand years ago, and that you know there were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark and things like that. Um, I have no beef with old Earth creationists. If you want to believe that God kicked off the universe, that's no skin off my nose. Um, I mean, I obviously don't think there's a need for it. But uh, again, I have no problem with old earth creationists as long as they believe in current science as we know it. Um, and I've not sh I'm not sure I've mentioned uh, some of the more outrageous claims here, such as the theory of the mud flood uh, and the idea that dinosaurs are all a hoax. We'll maybe swing back around to the mud flood at some point, but I wanted to broach the idea that dinosaurs are all a hoax. This argument uh, is often bolstered by the fact that 
It is actually true that many, if not the vast majority, of the dinosaur skeletons you see in museums feature uh, portions, at least, that are casts rather than actual fossils, and that a lot of them are put together um, using specimens from several uh, or using bones from several specimens. And so it's not just one animal, it's the remains of three or four animals cobbled together to give you the basic idea of what the animal type would have looked like. And so they take this as evidence that we don't actually have real skeletons and that people are just fabricating dinosaurs. Um, the reason is never really clear. Uh, apparently, we're trying to disprove God um, or a young earth, which there are so many other ways to disprove a young earth and nobody is trying to disprove God uh, by using dinosaurs. Um, I mean, hardly anyone is actually really honestly trying to disprove God. Uh, lots of people are trying to persuade you that maybe you don't need that concept in your life. Um, but even those people are not that, uh, you know, it's not that important to them um, for the most part. There are definitely some, uh, you know, evangelical atheists out there, but I feel like that has kind of peaked and is on the decline now. Uh, at least I hope so, because I do kind of look back on those angry atheist years of the uh, mid-2000s uh, and think, oof, <laughs> a little bit. Um, anyways, getting back to dinosaurs, this is obviously untrue. Dinosaur bones are very real and a lot of them are very precious. So sometimes it's a cast because they don't want to expose the real bones to potential damage, even within a museum setting. And so, of course, this in combination with, again, the paucity of actual skeletons to go around because not all animals uh, fossilize. It's actually quite hard to... Uh, find fossils of ancient animals. And so because of that, museums all over the world do often uh, have more cast material than actual fossils uh, in the displays in the dinosaur section at their, um, you know, in your local science museum, you're most likely going to see something that has a lot of cast material. Um, but again, as I've mentioned over the years, the conditions that need to the conditions need to be just right in order for an organism to become fossilized. And so this doesn't often occur. We have thousands of specimens of dinosaurs, but dinosaurs lived on the earth for literally millions of years. It's, it's actually a kind of unfathomably long time that dinosaurs lived on the earth way, 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 way longer than we have so far. Um, and if you think about the billions of dinosaurs that represents, the fact that we don't trip over fossils everywhere we go is a testament to the fact that fossilization isn't an easy process. And so again, you have to have exactly the right conditions. You have to have a body that is covered quickly with sediment 
or is in a position where it can't be picked over by predators um, and scavengers. There's a whole bunch of ways in which it needs to be just the right conditions. Um, it's also the reason why we tend to have more marine specimens, um, because marine specimens are, uh, you know, more likely to sink down into marine sediments and be covered over, which is a great medium for fossilization. Um, but every once in a while, we get lucky. And so back in 2014, on a private ranch in Montana, the almost complete skeleton of a ceratopsian was discovered and is now on display at the Melbourne Museum in Australia. Nicknamed Horridus, the specimen of Triceratops Horridus, hence the uh, not particularly uh, imaginative name, and also he was a meat eater. I mean, he was a he's a plant eater. He wasn't particularly horrible, I don't think. He would have been a, quite a cute. Um, I should I should say that they actually don't know the sex, so I shouldn't say he. Um, and I also shouldn't anthropomorphize it so much so quickly. Um, but the animal um, is nicknamed Horridus, and it's around eighty five percent complete overall, and its skull is ninety eight percent complete, which is amazing. Now, this animal would have been around the size of a large African elephant at 23 feet long and standing at over 6.6 feet. So this was a big animal. The bones themselves weighed around 2,200 pounds. Well, actually, that's actually kind of small for um, dinosaurs on the large scale. It's sort of towards the uh, middle bottom part of the scale. If you think about uh, giant sauropods, it's a pipsqueak compared to some of the giant sauropods that existed. Um, but it is still very amazing. And the bones themselves weigh around 2,200 pounds. And so um, remember though, if you uh, think about it, and we uh, we're just talking about how fossils are not bones. They are actually the permineralized, permineralized remains of bones. And therefore they're just basically rocks in some respects. They're incredibly cool rocks. Um, and so uh, the bones themselves would have probably weighed substantially less in real life, but the animal would have still been quite bulky. Um, it died almost certainly in or next to a river around 67 million years ago during the Cretaceous period. The almost intact skull features two uh, rather slim horns at the brow ridge and a large frill around five feet that is sort of spread out behind those horns. It also had a small squat horn just uh, between and maybe slightly above the eyes uh, to complete the Triceratopsian set of three horns. As noted, most skeletons in museums feature casts of bones that fill in for the missing parts of fossils and specimens. And again, these can be made of the bones of several animals because this is so unique to find a single animal that is so complete. Um, so obviously this makes Hardis pretty special. This is the Rosetta Stone for Understanding Triceratops. Eric Fitzgerald, a senior curator of vertebrate paleontology at the museum's Victoria in Australia, said in a 2020 statement, 
This fossil comprises hundreds of bones, including a complete skull and the entire vertebral column, which will help us unlock mysteries about how this species lived 67 million years ago. Now, the skeleton is not only now on display in Melbourne, uh, but it is also able to be viewed as a 3D scanned image. And so that can allow um, anyone to view it, researchers, uh, people, anyone. I mean, I actually went and looked at it earlier today. Um, and so, yeah, it's very, very cool. Okay, so we have a few minutes left and I wanted to talk about this um, because it's something that I was just, I've been thinking about Uh and so we're going to move from the ancient past to the future. And so there are a lot of worries about the coming AI apocalypse. People are worried about the concept of the singularity, uh, something akin to uh, when AI becomes able to continually build newer and better versions of itself and at some point finally becomes a superintelligence that will basically uh, look down at humans like they're ants. But I'm here to today to tell you that this is a very long way off, if it's possible at all. First off, we don't actually know what consciousness is when it comes right down to it. We have hypotheses, and it's an active area of study. But if you asked a researcher to build a consciousness, they'd have to tell you that they have no idea how to do it. The other issue is raw intelligence in computing systems and the difference between machine learning that we talked about earlier and actual intelligence. Um, and so an actually intelligent AI program would be something different from a machine learning program. Ithaca is a great example of machine learning, but it is certainly not going to pass a Turing test anytime soon. Um, so just in case you're not aware, for a computer program to pass a Turing test, it would have to fool a human into believing it was another human. Chatbots are often pretty good at a particular subject, but they can't independently form thoughts that would allow you to talk to them about any subject. Automated phone trees can mimic humans fairly well, but again, they're only programmed to that particular task. And that brings us to the topic I wanted to discuss. Recently, the MIT Technology Reviews in Machines We Trust podcast tested two AI-powered job interview softwares and found that they do not live up to the height from their advertisement. Two systems were tested, Curious Thing and My Interview. My Interview tests candidates on traits associated with the Big Five personality test, which is widely used in psychiatry but isn't so useful in the world of, co of corporate application. Curious Things also looks at other measures such as, quote, humility and resistance. Both then offer assessments to hiring managers. To test the system, Technology Review created fake job postings for an office administrator slash researcher on both apps and then constructed fake candidates that they believed would fit the criteria they'd laid out for the job posting. And so what happened was that one of the researchers actually went and did it as a candidate. And so on Curious Things, they first did um, 
the interview normally and they got an 8.5 out of 9 for English competency. But then um, when Schnellman retook the test, she actually read from a German Wikipedia page and still got a 6 out of 9. The My Interview gave that same German language video a 73% match for the job. And um, yeah, so this is definitely not as great as people make it out to be. And it is very much a product of um, the idea that AI is not as sophisticated as we think it is. Um, There is some more about this, but unfortunately we're out of time tonight. So maybe I'll come back to it next week. Um, Thank you for listening. We... You have been listening uh, to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.